Well, we've had some guest preachers the last couple of weeks, so we've taken a break from our summer series, but today we're back looking at tweets from Scripture. That's verses that could be contained in a Twitter entry. And our verse is on page 901 in the Bible in front of you, and it's John chapter 14, verse 6. But I'd like to start uh, reading at the end of chapter 13. We're in the middle of the Last Supper. Jesus and his disciples have gathered. And he's telling them what to expect. Namely, that he's about to leave them. He's about to leave them to be betrayed and killed. And obviously this is troubling to them. So while he's comforting them, he says some of his most famous words here. So read with me, starting in chapter 13, verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Jesus said, uh, Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Let's pray to ask God for help to understand this word. Father, Jesus gives us words that we marvel at and that are sometimes hard to understand, but please help us not to stumble over them, not to trip, but to hear and understand with the help of your spirit. And I need your help as I speak. Please build your church as your word is preached. Amen. Well, a few months ago, I had breakfast at Chick-fil-A with Franklin Krzyzewski, and he told me about an article called The Myth of Moderation in Religion, which was actually part of a chapter in a book called The End of Faith. And the author, Sam Harris, describes a scene in which a young man boards a bus. He waits for it to fill with passengers. And when it does, he smiles. Then he presses a button to detonate a bomb. 
And he's lined his pockets with nails and ball bearings and rat poison to ensure the maximum casualties. And of course, as you'd expect, the author uses this vivid and tragic and too familiar scene to lump all religions together. He says that some of our most cherished beliefs are leading us inexorably to kill one another. But he doesn't bother to step back from that scene, from the horror of attacks like this, to examine the underlying reasons for them. True, he digs a little to say the most obvious thing, and that is that these attacks are caused by belief. And that's true. Our beliefs do determine our actions. But he doesn't dig deep enough to try to answer the really important question. Why do we, as people, need something to believe in? What is that desire? We've heard stories of kids from Western culture running off to join ISIS. Why? Why would they leave a life of YouTube videos and video games, seeming meaninglessness, and go die willingly? You can try to say they had mental problems. You can try to say they were disenchanted or impressionable, or they had a penchant for violence. But perhaps they saw their choice as an escape to a life of meaning. But here in our culture, many, including that author Sam Harris, think the answer to world peace is to keep insisting, no, there's no overarching truth. There's, and if there, if there is, we can't know it. It's unknowable. It's beyond us. Well, that's not cutting it, especially for these kids that run off. They're not finding peace. They want their lives to count for something. To say, as Sam Harris does, that words like God and Allah must become obsolete still leaves us stuck with the desire for meaning and for truth. And we also live with another dilemma. We want to know ultimate reality so our lives will have meaning, but it seems that if we encounter someone who claims to know the ultimate meaning of life, we brand them instantly as arrogant or unkind or closed-minded. And certainly there are many people that earn those labels. For example, we've all known Christians that are downright rude and argumentative. And discussions with them are one-sided and uncomfortable. So when it comes to truth claims, we want ultimate meaning for ourselves. But since we don't want to be considered prideful, we're content to say that for everyone else, anything goes. We say to each his own. And even many who would identify as Christians adopt this mindset. They consider their faith as just one of many valid things to believe. Tim Keller points out in the book, The Reason for God, that religion is, quote, a set of beliefs that explain what life is all about, who we are, and the most important things that human beings should spend their time doing, end quote. So in that sense, really all of us are religious, even the atheists among us. Keller writes, we must still do the hard work of asking, which affirmations about God, human nature, and spiritual reality are true, and which are false? we will have to base our lives on some answer to that question, end quote. Even those who cancel the search for meaning or God are making an important choice and building their lives on something. We all have that need to find meaning in our lives. As we look at this passage, we're going to see that because Jesus claims to be the way to God, he claims to be the ultimate meaning of life, we must decide whether or not we will follow him. And that decision will affect every aspect of our lives. So let's examine his claims, and then we'll see their culmination. And then we'll examine why his claims concern us. 
as we examine Jesus' claims, what is he really saying? Is he really claiming to be the only way to God? Well, yes, there's no getting around the fact that Jesus is claiming to be the exclusive way to fellowship with God. He didn't say, I am a way, a truth, and a life. Some people come to the Father in a manner other than through me. No. This verse is one of the meaningful and audacious I am statements that he makes throughout the Gospel of John. It's interesting the way this worked out for me to preach today because um, a few months ago, back in May, I got to preach on a passage from Exodus where Moses asks God, show me your glory. And part of God's answer to Moses' request is to tell Moses his name, to speak it, Yahweh, which is related to the Hebrew verb for I am. God's name, Yahweh, it describes his ultimate existence, his utter independence. God is the life on which all other life depends. I am who I am. Jesus clearly speaks as someone who assumes he has divine authority. I am the way, the truth, and the life. But isn't this just meaningless nowadays? Haven't we evolved past the point of taking exclusive truth claims seriously? There are many who would like to think so. They pride themselves in knowing the reality that there is no reality. Which is ironic. Can't they see that by claiming there is no ultimate truth, they're claiming to have a corner on truth? So there's no escaping our need for this ultimate meaning, even if we choose to make it only for ourselves. But just because Jesus is making a truth claim here doesn't mean we should be offended. Just because it's exclusive doesn't mean it's strange or obsolete. No, it's relevant to us here and now. His words affect us. They draw us in to measure them against our lives. But we can't really appreciate what he means without the surrounding verses. His words are an answer to a question. Jesus is preparing the disciples for his departure, but there's confusion about where he is going. Read with me uh, in verse 36 again. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you that the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. And now Jesus not only answers the question, but he claims to be the answer to the question. Verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Thomas is asked about the way. So there's special emphasis on that phrase, I am the way. But he also claims to be the truth and the life. And our judgment about Jesus being the way to God is tied to whether we believe he's the truth and whether we believe he's the life. These things are distinct, but they're interwoven. So let's consider the truth, and in a few minutes we'll consider the life. The truth. Do you find Jesus trustworthy? As C.S. Lewis put it, if you don't believe Jesus, the alternatives are to believe that he was either a liar or a lunatic. But you have to decide something about him. There's certain things in life where if the answer isn't yes, 
then it's definitely no. Have you, who here has ever received a survey, uh, a reference survey from Uber? Anybody? So you have a friend that wants to drive for Uber? All right, well, I received one recently. And it, it like, consists of pretty much one question. Is so-and-so a good driver? Yes or maybe? <laughs> so I'm like, oh, you know, I can't say yes, but they're giving me an out at least. I don't have to, like, slander this person, right? Well, I really, you know, you're giving your word for someone to be, you know, taking other people's lives into their hands. I'm just not sure. So, so after leaving it for, I left it for most of a day. Most of a day. I'm like, I'll come back to it later. I'll come back. Finally, I go on my phone and I press maybe. And instantly, the most, I mean, this page loaded so fast. You graded so-and-so a bad driver. No, I didn't. I, I said, maybe that's what you gave me. But instantly, abruptly, that was the only answer. If it wasn't yes, it was bad. It was no. You have to decide something about Jesus. He hasn't left any other options open. And one way you can decide is to look at his teachings. He taught differently than the Jewish leaders who twisted the scriptures to selfish ends. They kept the people enslaved. They controlled them with their superstitions and heresies. Jesus' teachings of true obedience, of love to God and others, these teachings were opposed to the error of the religious leaders of his day. Then there was his manner. His quality is a person who was always honest, always truthful in his words and his conduct with others. He told the truth with compassion, but he could matter-of-factly tell someone about the sins they had committed in secret. Earlier in the Gospel of John, there was the story of Jesus and the woman at the well. He associates with a woman who's an outcast, but he calls her out for her sin of adultery, much to her shock. And she goes and tells everyone to come meet the man who told her everything she had ever done. To her, this means he must be from God. And then there was no deceit in him. Even toward the end of his life when he was on trial. And a simple lie could have saved him from being crucified. He didn't lie. Wouldn't you hope that a man like this would be telling the truth about the way to God and eternal life? He's not just claiming to tell the truth. He says that he is that truth. So he's making bold claims. Exclusive claims. Claims that are divisive in our culture. But we must understand he's not saying these things just to be militant or arrogant. He's comforting his followers. Look at verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. They are deeply disturbed. That phrase has been used of him earlier in the book as he considers the path ahead of him to the cross. They're deeply disturbed. This man for whom they had abandoned their previous lives is now telling them he's going to leave them. Well, they want to follow him and be with him always. They cannot yet understand what he means when he says they know the way. Well, they will understand more very soon because he's going to show them the way through the cross. You see, these words are bookended by willing, humble service. At the start of this Last Supper, Jesus washed the disciples' feet. After this supper, Jesus will prove to be the ultimate servant by dying to make it possible for them and us to get to God. Why was this necessary? Why would he have to die? Why couldn't the disciples find God themselves? 
Well, it was necessary because God requires perfection. He requires us to be as perfect as he is. And not one of us lives up to that standard. This world is broken and we are broken. We mistreat one another and fail to live up to the standard of God's holiness. God would not be holy if there wasn't some kind of reckoning for the injustice in this world. And don't we desire that? When we see someone gouging prices of EpiPens, don't we have a problem? Don't we see injustice as we perceive it and want there to be a reckoning? God would not be holy if there wasn't some kind of reckoning, but he is holy and he is also loving. So he sent Jesus to live up to his perfect standards, then take our guilt upon himself and to be punished for our guilt with death. This is what Jesus means at the end of chapter 13 when he speaks to Peter. Look at verse 36. Where I'm going, you cannot follow me now. Jesus is the only one qualified to go accomplish this. Peter's not going to lay down his life for Jesus. Jesus is going to lay down his life for Peter. He's going to sacrifice himself to meet God's requirement for justice. He lived the perfect life we should have lived and died the death that we all deserve. And he himself removes any ground for saying that his claims are arrogant. Surely it's not arrogant to predict that you're going to serve the people you intend to save by sacrificing your life. He's a humble servant. What about the life? How is Jesus the life? For one thing, he's claiming to have divine life in him, to be one with God himself. Look at verses 7 through 10 of chapter 14. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Jesus is not just a man who mustered up the will to obey God perfectly. No, he was a man and he was God. It's that mystery that we consider especially at Christmas. It's one that scripture teaches The solution to our separation from God was for God to become a man himself. Become a human being and make a way to him. Jesus shows us what God is like in a way that we can understand, in a way that's accessible. He bridges that gap. He reveals God to us. Back in 1994, a fairly obscure song came out, but it's one I remember. Uh, It was called One Christmas Eve. And in this song, a man who's cynical about Christianity is home on Christmas Eve and a snowstorm whips up. And out the window he sees some sparrows and he tries to go out and gather them into a shelter so they don't die in the cold. But of course they scatter. They don't understand what he's trying to do. So he thinks, if I could only fly among you, I could make you understand. And suddenly he understands the wisdom of God becoming man to communicate himself to us. So, Jesus claims to have divine life in him, to be the God-man. He also claims to have power over life and death. Earlier in the Gospel of John, chapter 2, he said, destroy this temple and in three days I I will raise it up. And he wasn't talking about the literal temple there in Jerusalem. He was talking about his body. He was foretelling his death and his resurrection by his own divine power. 
In chapter 10, he said he has the authority to lay down his life and to take it up again. The resurrection is the proof of these words. Everything hinges on the resurrection. Without it, Jesus has proved to be either a liar or a lunatic. And those of us who follow him are to be pitied if Christ is not risen from the dead. The resurrection is how God tells us that Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf was acceptable. In the Bible, the way God's people knew whether a prophet was truly a prophet was whether his words came true or not. That's how they knew his words were from God. Jesus is promising things here that end up coming true. He does die. But thankfully, we have the written testimony of witnesses that Jesus did rise again from the dead and go to the Father. Now that he has made a way to come to the Father, we are able to follow him, as he told Peter. He not only has the power over life and death, but he can share that very life with us. Some of our Grace Church family have been mourning the deaths of loved ones very recently. Make no mistake, death is the enemy. It's an enemy. It's not to be welcomed. But Jesus defeated it, and he says that we can be free of it as well. Well, if Jesus is the truth and the life, it follows that he's the only way to God, the only way to escape ultimate death and separation from God. If he's the truth and the life, what other way would we need or want there to be? In light of Jesus' claim, our decision is either to follow him or not. If you're here as a skeptic, I know this may merely scratch the surface of all the objections you have. For you, the shadow of doubt is cast long over this passage and over the whole Bible. Well, that's okay. Bring all your scrutiny. This man, Jesus, and his words can withstand it all. Keep looking and reading and asking. But be honest with yourself that any time you make a statement about what's real, you're making a religious statement. The author I mentioned before, Sam Harris, he wrote another book called Waking Up, A Guide to Spirituality Without Religion. I wonder if he sees the irony in wanting to abolish religion while still claiming to be a spiritual guide to people. Everyone believes in something. Everyone worships something. If you're here, you've never trusted Christ to be your sacrifice. But you find this beautiful. You find yourself having a new desire to follow him. Come, repent of your sin and place your faith in Christ. There's a prayer on the back of your bulletin. You can read it. You can make it your own if you really see your need for Christ. He's the ultimate meaning to your life. If you're here as someone who claims to be a Christian, but you've given up on the idea of Jesus as the only way, the one truth, the one life, the one avenue to God for everyone, if you've abandoned that concept, you need to reevaluate what you say you believe. Many people reject this idea of one way to God because we know what it means then for those people who don't believe. The eternal agonizing hell of separation from God. That's why Jesus came, to give us eternal life. So don't place yourself above God and tell him he isn't fair. What is fair would be for God to leave us all in our rebellion against him. We're not entitled to be saved. It's a gift of grace. Those of you who are Christians who are convinced Jesus is the only way but often find yourselves too shy to share the gospel, and I'll admit I find myself in this camp often. I admire people like Adriana who can, within five minutes of meeting a person, somehow lead the conversation completely naturally to questions of ultimate things. I'm not like that. 
We love the truth and want others to know it, but not enough to actually tell them. When when I'm shy like that, I'm actually being selfish. I'm placing my reputation, what people might think of me, above their deepest need. Jesus says to go make disciples. You know, there was a video a few years ago that Mark tried to show. And we couldn't get the sound to work. I messed it up somehow. And it was uh, Penn Gillette, the guy from that magic act, Penn and Teller. He's not a Christian. But he tells the story of how a Christian tried to share the gospel with him and gave him a Bible, which he appreciated. He wasn't mad. He, He appreciated that the guy would care enough to do that. It's an amazing video. It's on YouTube. You can watch it. Um, He goes so far as to claim that if you really believe that non-Christians will end up in agony separated from God, how bad do you have to hate someone not to tell them that? It's amazing. To evangelize is to show love to another person. That's why the REACH team here at Grace is so important. You know, the vision of that team, if you're not familiar, is that we all here at Grace, would know how to share the gospel with those in our families and our communities. Not with an air of superiority, but with the servanthood and love of Jesus who shows us how God really is. I want to be able to share this with others with an air of joy, not with fear or snideness. So do you see Jesus? Have you seen the Father through Jesus and come to the Father through him? He's the only way. He's the only hope for this world. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Jesus' words. I ask that you would drive them into us, that people here who need to trust you would do so, that those of us who know you would have a passion to share you with others, to show them that kind of love. And be with us now as we remember your death and resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen.